All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. But God has laid upon Christ the iniquity of us all. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's ask his guidance on our study. Father, we are so grateful that we have this time to come together. Father, we have your word, which is such a remarkable privilege, and yet so often we treat it somewhat cavalierly, that we have in our possession good, solid translations of your word that you have revealed and that have been preserved by you down through the centuries, that we might know the very mind of Christ, that we may learn to think as he thinks, and that we may have through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, his character built and developed in us through God, the Holy Spirit, that we might demonstrate to the world the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we study today, we pray you'd guide and direct our thinking, help us to understand what we have studied and how uh, this fits within the pattern of Scripture, that it might not be just a lesson in understanding the word in terms of knowledge, but its implications in our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. Now at this point in our study in Matthew, I want to go back and review this section from Matthew 8 through Matthew 10. Now, many times when I go through a series, whether it's a topical series or whether it's a book series, about the time I finish the series, I feel like I'm ready to teach the book or the topic. Because by the time you get through doing all of that in-depth analysis and everything, you finally think that you can uh, put it all together. And that's sort of how I feel about these last three chapters in Matthew 8 through 10. Let's just remind ourselves of what's going on here. Matthew is a gospel written by a Jew to Jewish Christians about the Jewish Messiah to confirm, first of all, that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Jewish Messiah. And second, to answer their question about why, if the king has come, the kingdom hasn't come. He is telling them why the kingdom was offered, why it was postponed, and why they are living in a new age. That's really the setup. And it's interesting, as I pointed out earlier as we've gone through Matthew, that it's Matthew that emphasizes discipleship because discipleship, even though the word's not used once we get into Acts, The concept is there, which is that we are all challenged to become followers of Jesus Christ and to learn the word, that that is the highest priority uh, in our life. 
So Matthew's presenting that foundation, and this whole concept of discipleship runs through this section like a, like a laser targeting on those last verses, which we covered last week in Matthew chapter 10, and dealing with the, the reality and the demands, the obligations of discipleship upon every believer. A reminder that just because you're a believer in Christ doesn't mean you're a disciple. A believer is someone who has secured eternal life through faith alone in Christ alone. A disciple is a person who decides that after they're saved, they want to follow Jesus. That's a key term that you need to pay attention to as we go uh, in this in this particular review. So Matthew begins with a presentation of the Messiah. He goes through his genealogy, which establishes the fact that Joseph cannot be the human father of Jesus. It's an emphasis upon the virgin birth. He gives more of an emphasis to that in the latter part of chapter 1 than the other gospel writers do. He brings in the wise men who recognize the royalty of Jesus. These are the magi, uh, kingmakers from Parthia. Uh, Jesus then, his family, flees to Egypt returns from Egypt, which is a pattern established uh, in the Old Testament. So he's following that, Hosea 11, uh, 1, my son, which is clearly, if you trace through the uh, derivatives of that back in the Old Testament, that, that especially going back to Balaam's oracle, it indicates that this is a messianic title. My, my son, I have called from Egypt. So this is why uh, Matthew quotes from that. We have then the Annunciation by John the Baptist uh, that Jesus is the Messiah, and he proclaims that. So this is the presentation of the king. And then we have uh, chapters 5 through 7, which, uh, where Jesus is proclaiming the, mess- what the implications of the message of the kingdom to his disciples. It's the preaching of the king, the training of the twelve, begins there, Matthew uh, chapter 5 through 7, in terms of what we usually refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. At the conclusion of that, Jesus makes an interesting comparison which indicates his claim to deity as he uh, talks about building our house, that every person is building a house. Your life is a house. What are you building it on? What's the foundation? And he talks about the person that builds solidly builds on the rock of God's word and that he compares to himself. So he goes to Deuteronomy, and he compares himself to uh, the word, and he says, if you keep my words, he who builds upon this house will have a solid foundation. So again, he's, he's applying to himself these attributes of deity. And then we come to the section we've just finished, Matthew uh, 8 through 10. Matthew 8 and 9 covers 10 miracles arranged in three groups of three. You say, well, wait a minute. There's three groups of three is nine. Robbie, we all know your math is, is terrible, but usually you can figure out that nine isn't 10. That's right. There's In that last group, it's kind of funky because there are two miracles that are intertwined, and they are always connected together, but the episode is presented in each of the three Gospels as one episode. It's important to look at that to see why does Matthew arrange things that particular way. The purpose of these miracles in the flow of Matthew's uh, Gospel is to authenticate the king, that the king has come, he is uh, the promised Messiah, 
and that he has is performing all of the works that are expected of the Messiah to establish his credentials. As we go from Matthew 9 to Matthew 10, we see the transition, the transition of his power and his message, his preaching, to the 12 disciples. This, again, fits a pattern that goes back into the Old Testament, and we see Moses uh, transferring to Joshua. We see uh, Elijah uh, transferring to Elisha. Uh, we see Jesus now uh, uh, transferring his uh, message and his uh, miracles to uh, to the disciples. Now, from this section, Matthew 10, we go into a new section. In Matthew 11, we start to see the heavy opposition develop to the king and his message, and it culminates with the rejection, the official rejection of Jesus by the religious leadership in Matthew chapter 12, where they say that he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. So that's where we're headed. So we, at this point, before we get into the opposition to the king in in chapter 11, I want to go back and take a look at some things uh, a little differently in these chapters. So remember, one of Matthew's major themes is to show why the gospel has been postponed. It was because the Jewish leadership, political and religious, And the majority of the Jewish people rejected Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. Now, tens of thousands of Jews did believe in Jesus. A huge number believed in Jesus. And after the resurrection, after we get into the book of Acts, we see even uh, larger numbers did accept Jesus as Messiah. But the nation as a whole rejects him. The majority of them and their leadership rejected Jesus as the Messiah claimed that he was a servant of the devil, that he got his power from the devil, And so for that reason, the kingdom is retracted and the kingdom is postponed. Now, when we look at how Matthew tells the story, he doesn't develop it chronologically. That's important to understand. Luke gives us the chronological framework for the life of Christ. But Matthew is developing his message thematically. He's writing a theological argument to answer this question of who Jesus is and and why the kingdom has been Uh, has been postponed. So these episodes that we see in Matthew 8 and 9 are not arranged in the order in which they took place. We see that in the other Gospels. They are put in this order for a reason. Matthew isn't just haphazardly doing this. Now, some of this I just didn't pick up on the first time through, and as I've been done more and more reading and observing, uh, most of this I've uh, picked up in the last uh, two or three months while we were going through uh, Matthew chapter 10, just trying to uh, put this together. Many times what we see in Scripture, because we dig down so much, we get down into the nitty-gritty, we get, above, we get below the forest level, we look at all the details. The greater organization of a book often has as much significance for us as the details of the text. So that's why I like doing these reviews is it gets us back up to more of a bird's eye view doing a flyover where we can catch these uh, these patterns, which is why I've entitled this review Patterns and Principles. What we are seeing here is that there are certain patterns that we observe in Matthew's arrangement of these ten miracles that he is trying to 
make clear to us. And so he's making a number of key points simply in terms of the arrangement of these miracles. So Matthew arranges these ten miracles in groups of three interspersed with these episodes related to discipleship. Now, these episodes related to discipleship, as I pointed out, focus on the future ministry. So keep that in mind It's because we're going to come back and point out just one or two things there. But it's focusing on the future. At this point in his ministry, he hasn't, in Matthew's order, he hasn't sent the disciples out yet. It comes in chapter 10. So chapters 8 and 9 are really a prelude, establishing the foundation for why he is sending out the disciples to the house of Judah and the house of Israel in Matthew chapter 10. Now, as we look at this, we see a certain pattern that takes place in each of these triads. First, there's a miracle related to Israel. Second, there's a, he go, Jesus goes to a Gentile, and then he returns to the Jew. This is a pattern that we see throughout the New Testament that God's grace goes first to the Jew, then to the Greek, and then he's coming back to the Jew. Just because Israel rejected Christ at the first advent does not mean that he is done with Israel. He is going to return his plan and his purpose back to Israel. And so we see this this pattern uh, develop throughout this, and we'll come back and look at that in just a minute. So let's just do a flyover here as we go through these these various uh, various episodes. Now, as we look, as I said earlier, we have these three episodes uh, interspersed here related to discipleship, and that is going to focus us, and it lays the groundwork for Jesus sending out the twelve uh, when we come to chapter ten. And in these three separate episodes of, that relate to the, uh, the concept of discipleship, Jesus lays down the groundwork that those who follow him must submit 100% to his authority and follow him without looking back, that they understand the uh, particular mission that they have been called to. Okay, we start off with the first episode in 8, 1 through 4, where Jesus cleanses a leper. Uh, the, the leper that comes to him, this is a Jewish context. The leper comes to him, there's a context of great multitudes, and this leper comes and worships him. And so it's very important to understand a couple of things here. First, this individual had lep- leprosy. A lepros- leprosy in the Bible is a skin disorder. It's probably not identical to what we call... Uh, Hansen's disease today, but it was a more general term for any sort of skin disorder. Leprosy itself in the scripture is a depiction, is used as a picture of sin and the uh, the disfigurement that comes from sin. Uh, leprosy is something that uh, could be caught. It was difficult to catch, but the leper himself was... Uh, was, was scorned by societies, rejected by society, that when uh, the disease was identified, it would disfigure them. They were horrible to look at. They would have to cover their body, cover their faces. Often the uh, parts of their nose would fall off. Their uh, other um, disfigurements, extreme, uh, extremely ugly sores would develop on their skin as well as upon their organs. 
and leprosy would go down into the bone. Uh, the skin uh, becomes necrotic, uh, so that's why they would often, and, and it would lose a sensation, which is why they often lose their, the, the ends of their fingers or the ends of their toes. And overall, the individual who has leprosy is greatly disfigured. Whenever a leper would go into public, they were to cry out, uh, unclean, and the crowds would part. So you can just imagine the scene where this leper comes to Jesus, and they're surrounded by multitudes, and they would have just parted like the Red Sea as this guy came into the presence of Jesus. But as I pointed out before, uh, Jesus uh, does not uh, have to draw back because he is going to clean uh, this, cleanse this individual who is unclean. Now, this miracle is mentioned in all three Gospels. Luke, a physician, of course, as we would expect, gives a little more detail. He says that this individual is white with leprosy. It's uh, it's developed to an extreme case. He's been profoundly affected, and so that he is extremely repulsive in his appearance. Now, this is a depiction of sin, and in this, in the context, he's Jewish, and it, he is a representative of how Israel has been disfigured at this time in history because of sin, because of their disobedience to God. Now, that's not picking on Israel because all human beings are disfigured by sin. We have all been corrupted by sin. But in this picture, because in Israel, under the teaching of the Pharisees, Israel had a right to salvation simply because they were the descendants of Abraham. And so there wasn't a... Uh, a doctrine of sin in pharisaical theology that would uh, mean that every person, every Jew that came into the world was spiritually dead. They were somehow uh, exempt from that. And so he comes and he uh, presents himself to the Lord and he recognizes who the Lord is. He bows down to him and he worshiped him. And the Lord accepts that worship. Now, in Scripture, whenever we see someone trying to worship to someone other than deity, someone other than God, they are always rebuked. When men bow down to angels, the angels tell them to rise up. When men bow down to prophets, the prophets say, get up. They're just a man. But when men bow down to Jesus, he accepts their worship. So the leper falls down before the Lord recognizing that Jesus is God, and he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He understands, he's picturing what is the, what, what should be the response of Israel to the message of John the Baptist and Jesus, to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is exemplifying that concept of repentance as he's turning to the Lord, and the Lord says, I'm willing, be cleansed. And so... He's demonstrating as, a, as the Messiah, of course, his power over sin, his power to cleanse sin and to heal that problem. Now, he, he then tells the, um, tells the leper to go, don't tell anybody, but go to the priest and follow the protocols of the Levitical offerings for cleansing. Another reason he tells him not to tell anyone is because at this point in his ministry, Jesus is not offering universal health care. 
He doesn't want the word to get out and everybody to get confused and say, well, Jesus fed the 5,000, he's cleansing the leper, let's go to Jesus for a meal ticket, and he's going to give us universal health care. That's not his mission. That, that's a distraction. These are only only ways in which he's establishing his, his credentials as to who he is. Then the second episode involves a centurion's servant. Now, who's a centurion? A centurion would be one of the... Uh, one of the top non-commissioned officers in the Roman army. Such a centurion was thought of in very negative terms in the context of Judea because a centurion represented the Gentile army. The centurion represented the enemy. The centurion represented the oppression that in biblical terms, had come to Israel since 586 B.C. when they were in the times of the Gentiles and under the dominion of the Gentiles. But this centurion is a God-fearer. We know that he is also uh, responsible for giving a large amount of money to pay for the construction of the synagogue uh, at that time, that's not the synagogue, the remains of the synagogue that we see today in Capernaum, but it's the preceding synagogue, and that was... Um, that that money was provided by this centurion. So he is a God-fearer. And he represents uh, that the gospel will go to the Gentiles. And so Jesus, uh, after uh, healing the Jewish leper, then goes to Capernaum, and this centurion, this Gentile, comes with him and says, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed. Notice that all of these miracles have to do with people who are diseased, uh, deformed, demon-possessed, or dead. They, all of those are things that represent the consequences of sin and total depravity in the human race. And throughout all of these miracles, we see that the only solution to that problem is the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the Messiah. He is the only one who can heal, can save, can deliver from the ultimate problem that plagues the human race. And so this this servant is paralyzed, and he comes, the uh, centurion comes to Jesus asking for healing, and Jesus says, I will come and I will heal him. I want you to notice also in Scripture that when you go to the book of Acts and the gospel goes to the Gentiles for the first time, to whom does it go? It goes to the centurion in Caesarea by the sea. And so there, there are these connections, these patterns that we observe uh, throughout Scripture that Jesus is not, the gospel isn't just going to any Gentile, but it's going to someone who, because of his position, because of his authority, represents the enemy to Israel and the enemy to God. And so uh, Jesus uh, heals this centurion's uh, servant, which is a... a um, real slap down to the Pharisees who had taught that Jews had a special relationship with God and by virtue of their relationship to Abraham, they would be, they would be saved. And this is uh, exemplified in that last uh, couple of statements Jesus made in verses 12 and 13. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer... Uh, excuse me, verse 11. I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The point is that the gospel and salvation is not just for Israel. It's for everyone. It's for Gentile as well as Jew. 
whereas the teaching of the Pharisees had elevated the Jews to this special spiritual status just because they were uh, from uh, just because of their relationship to a- Abraham that they would automatically be saved. This is alluded to in John 1, 12, and 13, where John says, as many as received him, in contrast to what he said in the previous verse, that he came to his own and his own received him not, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. That's the issue, is just believing in Jesus' name. Then verse 13, who were born, that's talking about being born again, regeneration, not of blood. It's not based on your genetic relationship to Abraham, nor of the will of the flesh. You can't just exercise your own will and save yourself, nor of the will of man. Man cannot determine it. Ultimately, it is God. We don't have any merit in the case. It is based upon God and his word and the condition he lays down in the scripture. Then we come to the third miracle. Peter's mother-in-law is healed. Two verses, verses 14 and 15. Jesus came into Peter's house. He's already in Capernaum. This is where Peter lived, and he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. This is his mother-in-law. And so she represents Israel. She's Jewish. And so Jesus has gone first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. Now he is coming back to to the Jews, which is exactly what will take place in history. He came to Israel, offered the kingdom. It was rejected. Then he turned to the Gentiles. We have the establishment of the church. And then he's, but that doesn't end God's plan for Israel. Then he will come back to Israel. They will accept him, and then he he will return and establish his kingdom in the millennial kingdom. So the situation here is a mother-in-law is sick with a fever, and so she can't do anything. So we read in verse 15, he touched her hand, and the fever left her. It's only going to be the Messiah who can enable her to fulfill her purpose, which is stated at the end. So she arose and served him. Israel was called by God to serve him. This is stated several times in Exodus. Exodus 4.23 states it. Exodus 8.1, the Lord spoke to Moses, said, Go to Pharaoh, say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But Israel is sick with sin. They, they were condemned for idolatry under um, in the Old Testament and disobedience to the law, which is why they were removed by God in divine judgment in 722 for the northern kingdom, in 586 for the southern kingdom, and they have failed to serve him, and now they're under the dominion of the Gentiles. But before they can serve God, they have to recover from the, the, the sickness of, of sin and idolatry and rejection of God, and that only comes as a result of Jesus coming and touching them and their recovery. Following that, in verses 16 and 17, we see sort of a summary statement where many people come to him who are demon-possessed and sick, and this relates to uh, the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 53, 4, that he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Then we have the interlude related to discipleship. Now, this is interesting when we put this in context. And I've often had trouble with this particular verse in verse 20. The, 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 the scribe comes to him and says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Note the word follow. It's going to show up several times in the coming uh, several verses. 
I will follow you wherever you go. Now, Jesus' response to him is somewhat cryptic. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. However, as we read through the Gospels, Jesus did have some place to lay his head. He wasn't just camping out the whole time. He had a house. Several times there's references to his house. And I've scratched my head over this for years, wondering what's the significance of this? And this, I believe the significance of this in context is he's, he is warning the disciples that things are going to get difficult. That runs all the way through these, these uh, little vignettes with the disciples in this chapter and is fully developed when we get into chapter, uh, chapter 10. There's going to be rejection. And Jesus is going to be rejected. What he is saying here is what John makes clear in John 1.11, that Jesus came unto his own and his own received him not. They didn't accept him. He didn't have, he came to his home, but the family didn't accept him. Israel did not accept him. So he had no place to lay his head because they were rejecting him. So verse 20 is a cryptic way to talk about the fact that he would be rejected and he wouldn't have a home and he wouldn't be accepted. We see a second disciple or would-be disciple in verse 21 come up and say, let me go first and bury my father. Another idiom for saying that, wait a minute, I'm I'm ready. Uh, I want to say I'm committed, but I'm really not. Because in this context, usually it, it, before you buried the father, there would be the initial uh, burial, and then you'd wait a year or more for the body to fully decompose, and then you take the bones and you would put them in an ossuary. And uh, so what he's saying is, is not just let me go home real quick, do the funeral, and then I'll come back. He's basically saying, uh, I, I got a lot of things to do in this world, and I've really got a lot of obligations. Let me just focus on those things, and I'll catch up later. And so Jesus said, follow me. This is the second time we've seen the word follow. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now notice, that's the that's, uh, then sets up the next triad. The next triad begins with the storm in the ship with the disciples. But in my Bible, I've got a paragraph break. I've got a, a subheading inserted there. But the way this reads in the original, Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now when he got into a boat, his disciples, what? Followed him. That thread is now being emphasized. A disciple follows Jesus no matter what the cost, no matter what the circumstances. His disciples follow him. Now the disciples here represent Israel in a slightly different way. And we look at this particular situation and we see that um, his disciples, uh, Jesus gets on the boat, his disciples get on the boat, Jesus is the one who is carrying the word. He's carrying the message. He's the one who is the teacher. He goes to the back of the boat, and he goes to sleep. And then this storm comes up, and the disciples who are in control of the ship panic, and they turn to him in order to save them. They recognize that he's the solution. So where have we seen this pattern before? Think about it. Men get on a boat. The one that's entrusted with the message of the Lord gets on the boat and goes to sleep. A storm arises, the sailors panic, and they turn to the one who's sleeping to somehow save them and somehow he's got a solution to the problem. 
But in the earlier story, it's Jonah. Jonah's the one who got on the ship. Jonah's the one who had been commissioned by the Lord to take uh, the message of the gospel to the Assyrians. Jonah was a racist. He hated the Assyrians. And he said, I'll do anything but take the gospel to the Assyrians. And so he went down to the port of Joppa, which is surrounded now by Tel Aviv, and he got on a ship to go as far as he could in the opposite direction to Spain and to the uh, settlement there called Tarshish. And so he wants to escape the responsibility of God, and his basic position is, I would rather die than give the gospel to these awful Assyrians. So the disciples here represent... In, in some way, Israel and their lack of faith for the last, uh, since, since they were called almost, they have been characterized by a, a lack of faith, a lack of faith of the Exodus generation, then you had the faith of the conquest generation, then you had failures of faith throughout the period of the judges, you had more faith demonstrated during the time of David and Solomon, but then compromised in her end. And then you have the split of the kingdom into north and south. All of the kings in the north are evil, all but six in the south. So over this period from about 930 to 586, a period of over 340 years, what do you have? You have only six good kings. There's a lack of faith in Israel. And so the storm comes up, and the disciples panic, and they turn to the Lord, and they say, Lord, save us. We are perishing. This is what Israel is expected to do at this time in their history. They're to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They're supposed to turn to the Lord and say, we're perishing, and look to him as the only solution. Their failure to do that led to the disaster of A.D. 70. And so Jesus' response to his disciples is, Why are you fearful, O ye of little faith? You just don't, you're not trusting me. And he arose, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, Who can this be? Demonstrating his power over creation. This also foreshadows the storms that will come later in the lives of the disciples, especially in Acts, and that the only solution to life's problems is to call upon the Lord, and he is the one who can sustain us. So it's a picture primarily of Israel and what they should be doing, what they're not doing. Instead, because, uh, and, and then in the next example, they go across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. What's on the other side? The Gentiles. He's leaving the Jews and he's going to the territory of the Gentiles, to the Gergesenes on the opposite shore, the area uh, area today that is over near the Golan Heights. And so he, Jesus is going to the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles are in uh, hostility to Israel, and he goes over there, and the first, one he's, the first uh, two people he meet are demon-possessed. They represent the Gentiles. Gentiles are under the dominion of Satan. They've been in darkness. Uh, the Gentiles have been in darkness since the Tower of Babel. And he goes to the Gentiles, and he's met by these two demon-possessed mans. We learn from reading the accounts that they're naked. That reminds us of what? Adam and Eve, after they sinned, they are 
they become aware of their nakedness and they try to sew uh, clothes from fig leaves and they go hide uh, from God because they are spiritually dead. So here we have these demon-possessed men. They're hanging out in a graveyard indicating that they are living with the dead. They're identified with the dead, representing the spiritual death that the Gentiles have. And so we know that these demons cry out to God, I mean cry out to Jesus, O Son of God, because they recognize his authority, but they do not want to be uh, tormented or sent to torments at this particular time. But Jesus then delivers the uh, two demon-possessed men. And then how do we see them at the end of the story? is that they are sitting, they're relaxed, they have recovered, they are saved, they are reconciled to the other Gentiles and reconciled uh, to God. They are saved. And then we see the reaction from the city. They are excited about what happens. And in verse 34, behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Wow, look at what this guy did. He's remarkable. And I think this pictures the fact that in much of history in the church age, Gentile nations have initially been receptive to the gospel and receptive to Jesus. But then what happens? Then they turn against him. And we see this time and time again. And the historical pattern is that once an area, once a territory, once a country accepts the gospel and then rejects the gospel, that they never recover from that. We see in the, the most recent future, we see the tremendous things that happened in Britain and in uh, Europe during the last two or three hundred years. But Europe and Britain have turned against the gospel and turned uh, to darkness, and they won't recover from that. And we are following in those footsteps as a nation today, and we will likely see that, that same pattern develop. Well, let's move on if we're going to get through this. Then we come back to the Jew. This is in the second pattern. He's gone to it has a, a, a miracle representing Israel first, then a miracle representing the Gentiles second, and then third he comes back to the Jews and he heals a paralytic. He heals this this paralyzed man who is unable to move, unable to function, unable to do anything, and he is a picture of Israel at, at that time. Uh, a paralyzed man is a man who can think, but he can't act. He can't do anything. The body is cut off from the head, just as Israel is cut off from their head, which is God. And so uh, they are paralyzed by sin. And this is the state of Israel, and it is the state of all human beings who are uh, rejectors of Jesus the Messiah. They are paralyzed by sin. And it, the solution is forgiveness. <coughs> Only the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, verse 6. And so to demonstrate that, he tells the paralyzed man, take up your bed and go to your house. And so this is a picture of what is needed and what will take place in the future with Israel, that they will be restored uh, through the forgiveness of sins and the kingdom will eventually, uh, will eventually come. That's the end of the of the uh, second triad. Then we have the episode with uh, the tax collectors, uh, with Matthew. What does Jesus say to Matthew? Follow me. So he arose and followed him. That's what disciples do. And uh, the, when the Pharisees see it, they're just critical because it doesn't fit their pattern of superficial, external uh, righteousness. 
And so they look at a tax collector who's received the grace of God, and they are critical of it. It's interesting to note that there were only two Pharisees that we know of in the Gospels. Now, there were, I think there were several Pharisees and a number of priests, according to Acts, that got saved after the resurrection. But during the life of Christ, only two Pharisees, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, accepted Jesus. Most of the religious leaders did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. But who did? The tax collectors, the sinners, the prostitutes, the people of the street who knew that they had no hope of any salvation other than the grace of God. And so he, in, in this section, also Jesus is talking about his disciples again in uh, verses 14 through 17. And in both of these, there's an emphasis that, excuse me, there needs to be a change and that this change is related to repentance. Verse 13, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what's being demonstrated throughout all of these uh, different episodes. And then in verses 14 through 17, it concludes with the fact that uh, new wine doesn't go into old wineskins, the old formats. There needs to be something new. There is something new coming. And then we come to the last part. And I don't have time to develop this out fully, but I want you to note this, that what we have here, and here's the chart, is the first miracle has two miracles. And what it demonstrates is that he goes first to a Jew, then there's a miracle for a Gentile, and then he comes back to the Jew. The, the resurrection or the recovery, the healing of the temple official, I mean the synagogue official's daughter, doesn't happen until after he heals the, the Gentile woman that comes to him. Let's just look at this quickly. You have two major characters, two women. First, you have this, the, uh, the, the synagogue ruler's daughter. Now, the synagogue ruler's name is Jairus. Jairus means to be enlightened or to be in God is the one who enlightens. So there's something that's brought out here in terms of enlightenment. So he comes and he says, my daughter has just died. He thought she was taking her last breath when he left, because when you compare it to the other other Gospels, she's uh, she's dying. Here he's gotten to Jesus. He thinks she's already died, and he said, come lay your hand on her, and she will live. What we learn from Luke is that she is 12 years old. She's still a child, because in Judaism, you don't reach adulthood until you're 13. She's 12 years old. And then... Jesus is going to follow him back to heal her, and he's interrupted. A woman who has had a hemorrhage, a blood flow, for 12 years. You think that's just chance that this woman's had this blood flow for 12 years and the little girl's 12 years old? As long as that little girl's been alive, this Gentile woman has had this malady. You think that's chance? I think the, the pattern here is that as long as Israel has been called out by God since Genesis chapter 12, the Gentiles have been sick. They have, been, uh, they have not been productive because when this woman has this ongoing hemorrhage for 12 years, she's barren. She can't have children. She's non-productive. And so it is only going, it's going to take the Messiah 
to change her condition, to change the condition of the Gentiles so that they can fulfill their purpose from God and be productive. And so he turns to her and he heals her. Uh, she sort of sneaks in the back door, touches the hem of his garment or the tassels of his robe, and she says to herself, if only I can touch the tassels of his garment, I'll be made well. And his response is, uh, he turns around, catches her in the act, be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well, and the woman was made well from that hour. Notice, many times before he's told people, don't, go, don't tell anybody. He doesn't tell the Gentile woman that. Because in the church age, the Gentiles are supposed to go and tell everybody. They will fulfill that. So he comes into the uh, ruler's house and, and to Jairus' house and says the girl's just sleeping, uh, using a euphemism there, and he goes in and raises her uh, from the dead. This is what will happen in the future, in the pattern. Israel, as a nation, is still spiritually dead. That doesn't mean all Jews are, are, are re- all Jews reject Christ, but most do during the church age. But there are many who don't. There have been numerous Jews. You have people like Benjamin Disraeli, uh, Felix Mendelssohn. You have uh, numerous others, Arnold Fruchtenbaum. You have uh, many that we know, Michael Rydelnik, others that ha- are Jewish and have accepted Jesus as Messiah. But it's, it's a minority. That's what Romans 11 pictures. But there will be a turning. There will be a future when Israel will turn as a nation as a corporate entity, and accept Jesus as their Messiah. And then we come to the last two episodes. Both of these last two episodes relate to what happens with Israel in the end times. You have the two blind men that uh, come out of um, Jericho. We see in verse uh, 27, uh, when Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. When he came into the house, the two blind men came to him, and Jesus said, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And in the next episode, it deals with a mute man. He's demon-possessed, and he is mute, and he can't speak. So what's going on here? Isaiah 35, 4-6. Uh, predict, say to those who are uh, fearful-hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. When does this happen? This is focusing on the end times. This is focusing on the end of the day of the Lord, which comes at the end of the future tribulation period. Then, it's at that time, See, what we see in the miracles in the Gospels is just a preview of coming attractions. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Israel is blind. They can't see God. At this stage in history during the first advent, they couldn't see who Jesus was. They did not hear what he was teaching. Their, their eyes were blind. Their, their, their ears were deaf. Uh, they couldn't walk with God. They were lame. And they couldn't talk about God because they were unable to to speak. And so in these two episodes, we see that Jesus is the one who enlightens those who are blind. Verse 30, their eyes were opened. And he is the one who gives the mute man the ability to speak by casting out the demon. 
And so this is a picture of Israel's future regeneration, that they will once again return to a place where they are uh, seeing God, they are hearing God, they are walking with God, and they will praise God for their salvation. So that is the uh, summary of 8 and 9. When we get to chapter 10, chapter 10 flows immediately out of the end of chapter 9. Chapter 9 ends with Jesus going out to the cities and the synagogues and teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and the multitudes are following him. But he turns to his disciples and says, The harvest is plentiful, but there are very few workers. You need to have a prayer meeting and pray for workers to go out in the harvest. And so the disciples had a prayer meeting, and they say, Lord, you need God, you need to send some workers. And the Lord said, I'm sending you. And they said, wait a minute, send Philip. And so the Lord sends them out, and that's the first four verses of chapter 10, and then he gives them their mission in verses 5 through 15 to go to the house of Israel. And they're to do what? They're to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. See, they are carrying on the ministry of the Messiah and authenticating his message. But then there's the warning, and that's what we've recently covered, so that's fresh in your minds. This is the warning that they are to uh, be aware of men, that they will be delivered up to persecution, and that this will continue until the Son of Man uh, comes. And so that they can expect that this will be the trend of the age, but it is especially true in that period just before uh, the Son of Man returns, which is in the second, uh, at the second coming, which is uh, mentioned in verse 23. So what is the issue? The issue for us is that we are to be completely sold out to the Lord and committed to Him, and that is the focal point of the uh, statement that Jesus made in verse 38. He who does not take his cross and follow after me, there's that word follow again, is the issue. That is what this whole section drives to, is calling, is, is calling these disciples and the ones they preach to, to this level of commitment to be a disciple and follow Jesus. The application for us is the same. Jesus doesn't want part-time soldiers. There, there's not a reserve unit in the army of God where you just go out for weekend duty. But that's how most Christians treat it. They're too busy. All you have time for is church on Sunday. Now, some people are very busy, and they don't have a lot of time, and that's, that can be genuine. Most people just think they're too busy. Most people can carve out a few times. You have to start somewhere. There was a great thing I saw a couple of weeks ago when we had the marathon here. There was an interview with this one guy who a couple, about eight or nine years ago weighed about 340 pounds. He was 140, 150 pounds overweight. And he knew that he was in trouble. He had two or three kids. He wanted to live longer. He wanted to get his health back. So he went to his next-door neighbor who was a marathon runner, and he said, would you be willing to work with me? I need to lose some weight. I need to get into shape, and I don't even know how to start. And the guy started working with him. This is where a lot of Christians are today. Now, some of you are way down the road from this, but they started off just walking a mile a day. See, some of you, the best you can do is carve out 15 minutes a day because that's where you need to go to, that's where you start. And that's what this guy was doing, walking a mile a day, walking a mile a day, and then pretty soon he was running a mile, walking a mile. It took a long time. 
He lost his way. Now for the last three or four years, he and his next-door neighbor run in eight or nine marathons a year. It starts with small steps. You've got to eat baby food before you can eat steak, and you can chomp down on barbecue and ribs and really get into the meat of the word. But you have to start somewhere. And that's where a lot of Christians are. They're just thinking, I'm too busy. Most of that isn't true. You can always carve out a little time. But some people, I think, really are busy. At times and seasons in our life, we get very busy. But you have to carve out something to keep it going and to push forward and to go forward in the Christian life. The issue that this whole section challenges us toward is are we willing to follow the Lord or are we just giving it lip service? And most Christians who show up on Sunday only are just giving it lip service. That's it. They think they've done their bit for God. We've got God on Sunday morning. Everything else is going to be just fine. And Jesus is saying that's not enough. You're not going to have much at the judgment seat of Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word today. Thank you for revealing these things to us and giving us this challenge. Father, we pray that we might have the courage, the spiritual courage, to take up the challenge to start training for the marathon. For the spiritual life is a marathon. As the Apostle Paul says, we are running the race. We need to run it to win. We need to train. We need to develop endurance. We need to develop stamina, spiritual stamina. And that only comes by pushing ourselves. We need to expand our horizons, develop our discipline in terms of the spiritual life reading your word, studying your word, memorizing your word, applying your word, making your word uh, uh, integral part of every aspect of our life and our thinking. Now, for some here, the issue is not taking up the challenge to be a disciple. The issue is deciding your eternal destiny, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, recognizing that he is the promised and prophesied Messiah of the Old Testament, and he is the only one who can... Uh, raise the dead. He's the only one who can heal the sick. He's the only one who can give spiritual sight to the spiritual blind. He's the only one who can give spiritual hearing to the spiritual deaf. And he's the only one who can enable us to truly walk with you and not be spiritual cripples. And Father, we pray for those who are here who may and listen to this message who may not know or may not yet believe that they would take this opportunity to do so. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you, that by trusting in him, believing in him, and that is resting exclusively on his work on the cross, you might have eternal life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.